More than 40% of new cancer cases are linked to lifestyle factors, and about one-third of all cancers are preventable through a healthy diet, being physically active, and maintaining a healthy weight. The link between good health and exercise is well established, and more cancer practitioners are prescribing exercise as part of treatment plans for their patients. But with treatment comes many different side effects and physical changes that can make the idea of getting out for a run or hitting up a body pump class incredibly undesirable. However, even small lifestyle changes during and after treatment can reduce the side effects of treatment, improve quality of life, and reduce the risk of breast cancer returning. We spoke with Professor Erica James, exercise scientist and a behavioural epidemiologist at the University of Newcastle and the Hunter Medical Research Institute about the benefit of exercise for the prevention of breast cancer, how lifestyle changes can help reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence, and how you can take small steps to get active. we talk about lifestyle behaviours, there's a whole suite of behaviours that we're interested in talking about. So as you identify, we're talking about um, being physically active and having a healthy diet. Um, we also want to consider um, our alcohol consumption, use of tobacco. And whilst it's not an actual behaviour, but it's the result of those behaviours, we also want to be thinking about um, healthy weight management. So those sorts of, I guess, those four behaviours and that resulting um, healthy weight management um, what we want to do is look at the evidence around those in terms of um, how different women's um, behaviour then impacts what's, um, what they're experiencing. And we tend to kind of group those into three different groups. And the first group are things that we would, I guess, consider sort of psychosocial um, wellbeing outcomes. So they might be things like we know that um, being physically active um, helps improve your sleep quality and can really help improve um, if you're suffering from cancer-related fatigue. Um, we know that it can also um, improve some um, aspects of mood, so depression, anxiety, level of distress. Um, a lot of women also report to us that undergoing a cancer diagnosis and having cancer treatment for breast cancer, um, there's, a, there's a real sense of a loss of control. So all of the things that they used to be able to structure their week and have a say on decision-making about how their time was spent gets taken away. And being able to concentrate on some of these lifestyle behaviours can really help give people, give women back a take control and, and a sense of um, a sense of control. So all of those things together, really, we know can substantially improve um, overall quality of life. So the second bunch of things that can that um, that are potential improvements are the things around your body composition. So we know that being physically active, um, you know, before, during and after um, your treatment for breast cancer, that you can um, safely exercise and improve strength, aerobic fitness, flexibility, endurance, all of those kinds of, um, I guess, things that relate to your, your body physiology. And, and the third one that, um, you know, is obviously going to be really, really important for women is this idea of whether changing any of those lifestyle behaviours will actually change the, um, the, the chance that the cancer is going to come back, that we call recurrence, um, or the um, chance that they're actually going to die from their cancer. 
Um, and we absolutely have very good evidence to say that, um, that we, we can impact both cancer recurrence and cancer mortality by how we... Um, so cancer treatments these come with side effects pages. like fatigue, anemia and lymphedema. How can these lifestyle changes help reduce these risks? Um, so, so, yeah, great question. Um, so cancer-related fatigue is um, often reported by women um, and, and I have various discussions with women and they say, you know what, Erica, I have suffered, I, I've, I've been tired before. I've had small children and had interrupted sleep. I've done shift work. You know, um, I know what it feels like to be tired, but this is a whole new world. Um, and it often feels a little counterintuitive for people. I think that if they're suffering from cancer-related fatigue that's substantially impacting the quality of life, it's really tempting to rest. Um, when actually what we know is that, um, that the opposite is important, that what we want to do is actually have um, increase our activity and have a really great sleep hygiene program. So sleep hygiene refers to trying to avoid naps during the day, um, avoiding caffeine um, you know, after lunchtime, having a regular bedtime. Like there's a whole lot of um, you know, different um, things that we can actively put in place to have good hygiene. But physical activity is the number one um, treatment option for cancer-related fatigue. Now, lymphedema that you mentioned, that's where um, there's, you get a swelling in the arm or the hand or the breast. Um, it's often, uh, sometimes develops in women if you've had your lymph nodes removed or damaged during surgery. Um, and again, a little bit counterintuitive. What we used to say to women was give some messages about perhaps not using that arm. So we'd say, well, carry your handbag on the other arm or limit how much you're moving and those sorts of things. That's pretty, that, that's in, um, in contrast then to our messages about saying you can really improve your quality of life and your survival by being more active. So we've, we've done a lot of, there's been a lot of research done um, and the, to show that um, exercising is actually safe, feasible and beneficial for um, women who've had breast cancer who have lymphedema. Um, and the only thing I would say is that possibly it's worth talking with your healthcare professional um, about whether wearing a compression garment during exercise might be helpful if you are suffering from lymphedema. Uh, great. So what sort of exercises are suitable, such as cardio or strength-based training? And does this change depending on people's diagnosis, their age or their gender? Yeah, so the, the recommendations for um, cancer survivors as a whole group, and I use that term meaning anybody after a cancer diagnosis, are very similar to the recommendations that we have for the general public. So we really want people to meet 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity. So that translates to about 30 minutes on five days of the week. We also particularly want... Um, people to have two or three sessions of a strength-based activity um, as, in, in addition to that. So we don't tend to change that recommendation um, necessarily based on, um, on gender, but we do for those who are a little bit older. So for people aged over 65 years, we would say um, rather than um, 150 minutes of um, that moderate activity, so, um, you know, swimming, walking, um, or 75 minutes of more vigorous um, huff and puff activity, what we would say for those who are aged over 60 is that 30 minutes of moderate activity on most days of the week, preferably all, but most days, but trying to incorporate some different types so that we get some fitness, some strength, some balance, and some agility. 
So for older people, we might be then promoting um, different types of activities like water aerobics or Tai Chi. Um, if balance is an issue, we might be looking for chair-based activities. Um, so whilst we don't, um, you know, sort of change those general recommendations, whenever there's been a major medical issue like a cancer diagnosis, it's really important that um, the exercise prescription can be tailored to the person's individual circumstances. And this is where expert advice can be really helpful. So in Australia, the organisation that looks after exercise prescription um, professionals is called ESSA, e -S -S and they um, register and um, maintain and make sure that um, accredited exercise physiologists actually can do an assessment and write an exercise prescription for people who have chronic diseases um, like cancer. So um, that, that's, a, that's a really useful um, resource for people if they're um, looking to start an exercise program, if they've got any um, concerns or questions, um, but also just getting that real expertise. Now, in Australia, you know, one of the things, of course, we know that um, often people's work is interrupted when they're having cancer treatment and finances can be tight. So, you know, how are we going to pay for this? Um, in Australia, we have a fantastic um, system um, that's Medicare funded called a chronic disease management plan. You can go to your GP and, um, and say, I want to see an exercise physiologist. They write a, you a chronic disease management plan, you get Medicare subsidised visits with that exercise physiologist and you get up to five visits in a 12 month period. And that would be, um, a, you know, a really great number to be able to go in, have an assessment, get an exercise plan written, get taught how to do the exercises safely and, and really have a tailored personalised plan um, just for you. Um, so I strongly recommend that. You can't get that from your oncologist. You do need to go to your GP and, the, and what you're asking for is a chronic disease management plan. That's really fantastic. I had absolutely no idea about that. So I'm sure a lot of people will find that incredibly useful. Yeah. And look, and there are a lot of other, you know, community resources that are available. So, you know, don't, don't underestimate that that's the only choice. Um, a lot of cancer councils um, across Australia also um, have programs. So here in New South Wales, we have the Enriching um, Lifestyle Program, which is a free program. Um, it's diet and physical activity um, program. You get the equipment. Um, you can bring your um, carers along as well so that the whole family um, can, you know, make some really important changes. Um, uh, Encore runs a, um, sorry, YWCA runs a program called Encore, which is specifically for women with breast cancer who've got to the end of their treatment and are looking to um, make some social support links um, and meet some people in, you know, women in similar circumstances, but also take part in water aerobics and gentle stretching and just, it's a really lovely first step to becoming more active if that's something that, um, you know, you, you, haven't, you haven't been active prior or you're feeling a little bit nervous because of what's happened. Well, that leads us uh, into the next question, I guess, is what's your advice for people who want to make that first step to get moving, to get exercise back into their routine when it can feel like the absolute last thing that they want to do? Yeah, I would say, you know, start small. Any movement is better than no movement and choose activities that you enjoy doing. So um, I guess my, my example of what not to do is um, I've, I've had a lot of knee surgery over the years and um, that cycling would be, you know, a really great non-weight bearing exercise for me. But I really hate it. 
but I keep buying bikes and trying to convince myself that this would be a really good thing to do when really the activities that I enjoy doing um, for me personally are around um, also being able to socialise and, and talk with people, which I can't do when I'm cycling. So I think that you know, we have really good evidence um, from a whole range of different trials in terms of what sorts of exercise people are able to maintain and, um, and that enjoyment's really important. So then it's thinking about, well, how do I enhance that? So if it's a walking program, you know, are there great podcasts that I love to listen to or music that I wanna listen to? We know that people who own dogs um, are more active, they're more motivated, the weather's a bit bad or something like that. They still take the dog for a walk. Um, you know, so, the, so there's a whole lot of things that about knowing yourself, I guess, and reflecting on where have I had success before um, and what can I integrate into my um, lifestyle that's likely to be able to be maintained. But it's certainly not about um, jumping straight into a seven day a week, high intensity, um, you know, pro exercise program. Um, I'd also say that um, try and reframe some of the movements and thinking of it as an opportunity. So one of the big issues for a lot of people is when they um, have to go for um, treatment, uh, treatment at a cancer treatment facility, the parking's terrible. Um, so this is universal. We all have this terrible, you know. So instead of, you know, kind of feeling like this is, oh, what a drag and look how far away we had to park, what a fantastic opportunity to have a brisk 10 minute walk from where I parked to the treatment center. And really seeing that as part of your um, treatment plan and your wellbeing plan. So you're sort of reframing some of those um, opportunities um, to, to be um, active. And family and friends, of course, can help and they, and they want to help. So how can they get involved with people who've undergone, who are undergoing treatment or who've just had a diagnosis? How can they help their, their loved ones get active again? Oh, and that, that's a terrific question and it's got um, benefits both ways. So often those of us who are around, surrounding the person who's undergoing um, uh, cancer treatment, feel, really feel at a loss as to how they can be helpful. It can be very, very distressing. And we, we see that in the levels of anxiety and depression um, amongst carers of people with cancer. So we really want them to have some practical, helpful strategies that they feel that they can contribute. And equally, we know from the behaviour change research that um, if you're in a supportive environment, you're much more likely to be able to make changes and maintain those changes. So actively getting your family and friends on board, explaining what it is that you're trying to achieve, sharing your goals with them, and then brainstorming together, well, what, what would make that supportive and how might we do that? So instead of, we are, you know, I meet the girls for a coffee catch-up and coffee and cake, instead, can we change that and make that, uh, that we all wear our walking shoes and we, um, we have a walk and we finish with a coffee? Um, you know, um, so I think... Uh, that, that, that there's lots to be lots to be gained by um, by social support. The people who are the most successful often tell us um, anecdotal stories about the things that how, about how their home life operates. So that might be that all of the um, you know if I'm trying to perhaps um, snack less on high fat 
and high sugar um, products might mean explaining that to the whole family and that cookies and cakes and biscuits and things like that go into a container that you can't see through and get put, put in a cupboard rather than being out on the bench. And, but instead out on the bench, what we have is um, you know, a great array of fresh fruit um, as the snack options. Um, similarly, you know, limiting the amount of um, yeah, sugary soft drinks that are in the house and replacing it with water, those sorts of things. Um, having family walks um, as the agreement, because, you know, if it's uh, anything that really, I guess, helps that, that in that moment of the, making the decision, can I be bothered to put my shoes on and go outside? And somebody saying, I'm ready for my walk, mum, you know, let's go, um, those sorts of things. So absolutely, there's great scientific evidence to say that social support is crucial and lots of good ways to, to, to do that. There's a terrific resource on the um, BCNA website. So that's Breast Cancer Network Australia. Um, and it's a free pamphlet called Exercise and Breast Cancer um, if you can, that you can Google. Um, and it's just terrific. It goes through how you would set goals, um, medium and long-term, making sure that they're measurable, why and how you might share that with your friends and family. Um, and I, I really strongly recommend that resource. It's just terrific for... Um, starting to get some of those changes that we're looking for. So I guess if you have decided that, yes, exercise is definitely something that I, I need to incorporate into my life during this time, what kind of questions should you be asking your treatment team before you start setting your goals, before you, before you go to see an exercise um, physiologist? So the exercise physiologist will absolutely be able to help with any of the things that you might be at risk for. But some key questions that you might want to um, talk to your doctor about is um, clarifying whether you're at an increased risk of bone fracture. So if you've got low bone mineral density, if you're menopausal or postmenopausal, um, if you're older, or if the cancer has spread to your bones and they have what's called bone metastases, then you might, you're at an increased risk of um, breaking a bone if you were to have a fall. Um, and in those cases, we would be um, not saying don't do anything. We would be saying, let's try lower impact exercises like walking or swimming or yoga, those kinds of activities. So clarifying that your risk in terms of um, bone fracture would be a useful question. A second question, um, if you're having active treatment, would be, am I at increased risk of infection? So, for example, if you're um, undergoing chemotherapy and you've got a reduced white cell count, but you want to go swimming in the local pool, it would just be helpful to, to clarify your current risk and, and maybe make a plan around that. But for the other kinds of, um, I guess, general risks that I would talk to about anybody, regardless of whether they had cancer, um, they would be the sorts of things that, um, you know, if you've had a, a history of, um, of cardiovascular disease or a heart attack, um, you know, there are some other, the other issues that aren't perhaps related to your cancer diagnosis that you'd also want to keep in mind. And that's where the accredited exercise physiologist can be um, a terrific resource for you. And obviously an exercise physiologist is completely qualified and they can guide you in this. But if you were to say to go instead to a personal trainer or to some group fitness, if you felt up to it, what kinds of questions should you be asking these professionals to ensure that you have a qualified professional on beside you to help you through this process? Yeah. So I think, you know, always my first recommendation would be, if possible, go to an exercise physiologist and the ESSA website um, has a search function where you can actually put your postcode into that search function and 
find um, local um, accredited professionals, and then you're absolutely guaranteed that they've had the training and oversight to work with cancer populations. Now that, as you say, it's not gonna be for everyone, and especially if you've um, previously been part of group fitness or at a particular gym, or that's how you're going to get that social support, you've got friends or family who are gonna go with you. So in that instance, really what you want to be able to do is um, be asking some questions around modification. And so do they have any experience working with chronic disease groups? Now, the National Heart Foundation used to run a terrific program called Heart Moves, where personal trainers in gyms could do an extra training um, program and become accredited so that it was they had extra training to say it's safe for me to train people who've had some a heart attack or a stroke or... Um, some kind of cardiovascular event. And a lot of the modifications that they get taught are also really appropriate for people who've got cancer. So whilst that program isn't active anymore, that would also be another um, question that you could ask. And, and really, um, I think that that could give you some really helpful guidance about how much information does this person have in terms of um, making sure that an exercise program is going to be safe for somebody um, who, you know, not just somebody who's 21 and otherwise completely fit and well. So a lot of the exercise that we've spoken about today has been walking or swimming. What about exercises like yoga and Tai Chi, um, more low impact exercise? Does that count towards your, your weekly requirements? Oh, terrific question. So, um, so there's 16 different trials that have been done on whether yoga is beneficial for women with breast cancer. And what we can say from those trials is that we absolutely see an improvement in health-related quality of life, which is really important. We see improvements in depression and anxiety and gastrointestinal um, symptoms. Interestingly, what's come out of those um, studies is that in, to, in order to see improvements in anxiety, you need to practice the yoga for at least three months. So it's not going to be a quick fix, instantaneous, I did one session of yoga or I went for a fortnight and I'm getting sudden improvements. But we're absolutely starting to see some very nice evidence evolve to say that it can have some really important benefits. Now, they were those benefits that I spoke about at the beginning in terms of um, how we're feeling in ourselves, our quality of life and our well-being. A little bit different to some of the evidence that I was presenting to you about prevention of recurrence, where we really want to see that aerobic and strength-based um, uh, activity included. So by all means, if yoga is something that you um, enjoy, I would say absolutely keep that as part of your suite of different activities, especially if it's something you can do with friends and family and um, have some additional social support. The other um, uh, type of exercise that, that often gets mentioned is um, in regards to, um, to Tai Chi. And there's some really interesting research that um, has come out. So there were six different trials or experiments um, around um, the impact of Tai Chi for people with cancer, specifically looking at did it help with cancer-related fatigue? Um, and it showed that if you can do Tai Chi for at least eight weeks, you can impact that cancer-related fatigue. 
So the evidence is a little bit more limited. It's not as broad based as, um, as the evidence for yoga, but most definitely if cancer related fatigue is something that, um, that you're suffering from or somebody who you know, um, you know and care about is suffering from and they're looking for something else that they might be able to put into their week to, um, to help with that, Tai Chi could be a great option for them to consider. So I guess don't just uh, give up after one session if it doesn't work. You've really got to commit to these kinds of low impact exercise. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that and if that means, you know, trying out different instructors or different groups, um, you know, and, and, and making sure that you can fit it into your lifestyle. But yeah, making that commitment that, you know, you really want to be looking at a, a, a two or three month um, arrangement before you're really going to be able to see those differences. Um, so, uh, so again, you know, as part of that goal setting and making that plan for your wellbeing plan for yourself um, is really making sure that that's um, going to be achievable to maintain. All of these lifestyle changes when you're going through treatment or when you've received a diagnosis, they obviously, as we've covered, help reduce side effects, help you feel better, give you a bit more energy. But what about the reduction of the risk of recurrence and even death from the disease. What's the evidence say about that? Um, it's a really great question. So when we talk about um, research studies, um, we would rarely make a recommendation or a wide sweeping statement just on the basis of one single study in one treatment center or from one country. Really what we wanna be able to do is have um, a body of evidence where um, things have been studied in multiple different sites all around the world using you know, different models. And then we synthesize all of those together in a thing called a systematic review. And as researchers, we then talk about how robust that evidence is. And in the, in the instance where we've got lots and lots of really high quality studies that have been brought together to make that recommendation, that's when we can say we've got level one evidence. And that's the bee's knees for us as researchers. That's what we, you know, we, we would love there to be level one evidence for every question that we ever get asked um, in, um, in, uh, in health. Um, so when, if I go through behaviour by behaviour, if our specific question is, will changing this particular lifestyle behaviour reduce the risk of the cancer coming back and or reduce the risk of me dying from this cancer, we've got level one evidence for physical activity. Of all the lifestyle behaviours, it's the one with the most robust evidence for um, reducing breast cancer recurrence, breast cancer related deaths and death from any cause. Um, and we know that uh, physical activity can reduce breast cancer mortality by about 40%. So it's a pretty sure thing. That's the one where, you know, um, we're really um, very, very clear and it's, and it's unequivocal. Now, remembering that we know healthy weight isn't actually a behaviour, but the result of our behaviours, um, it's much more difficult for us to run studies where we randomise people to be healthy weight or overweight or obese, like it is with physical activity. You know, we can put people in a physical activity trial and say, you know, this group is going to do whatever they were going to do anyway, and this group we're going to support you to be more active. That's much more difficult with, um, with body weight. So in that case, we can't rely on those experimental designs. We have to rely on the studies that um, observe people over time. Um, and so what we do know about body weight is that um, gaining weight during or after a breast cancer treatment increases the risk of recurrence and reduces your survival, regardless of what your starting body mass index was. 
So it's not just about, oh, well, I was underweight anyway, or I was healthy weight. It's okay to put on weight. It won't increase my risk. Or I was, you know, people who were overweight at diagnosis or at increased risk. It increases the risk regardless of that um, body mass index. So there were, um, you know, I spoke earlier about the, um, we really like these studies where we synthesise all of these individual studies. And there was a recent one of those done on 12 studies on weight gain after diagnosis. Um, and a moderate weight gain, which they diagnosed, which they defined as 5 to 10% of baseline weight, wasn't associated with increased mortality. So a small weight gain. Um, or moderate weight gain, but if you if the weight gain was more than 10% of your baseline, then we absolutely did see an increased risk in, in mortality. We don't really have a clear answer yet about weight loss um, and um, or whether preventing weight gain and what happens with breast cancer, but there's two really big experiments underway, one in um, the United States and one in Germany um, that will help us um, get more um, evidence around um, around that um, outcome and see whether actually losing weight during treatment um, might be a, a beneficial outcome. Now, diet's always complex. Um, so I'm going to talk to you in, the, in, in a couple of different subgroups here. Um, observational studies, so these are the ones where we, we don't try and tell people what to do, we just watch and measure what they were eating anyway and what the outcomes were for them. Um, they tell us that if you have a high consumption of saturated fats and high fat dairy products, you have an increased risk of breast cancer mortality. But the trouble we have with those studies is we can't control for how much physical activity people were doing and we can't control for their BMI. So there was one really big study done um, called the Women's Intervention Nutrition Study. They got um, 2,400 women with um, postmenopausal breast cancer and they did the experiment over five years. It was a huge study. Um, and one half of the women um, had an intervention to reduce their dietary fat intake by 15%, which is a big ask um, for people. And the rest just ate their diet as normal. And um, what we, they did show in that study was that um, the, the, the women who reduced their dietary fat intake um, were, had a lower um, breast cancer recurrence. Um, than the group who didn't change their diet. But again, the women who reduced their dietary fat also lost weight. So we're not 100% sure whether it was the weight loss or the change in the diet, dietary fat, that made the, that impact. Um, so that's still a bit of a work in progress. Um, similarly, lots of women ask me, um, you know, what particular diet should I follow? Should I do a Mediterranean? Should I do a prudent diet? Should I do keto? Should I exclude dairy? Um, and when we look at the research evidence across the globe from thousands and thousands of studies, there's no particular style of diet that's been found to be more beneficial than any other for reducing breast cancer recurrence. So just eat your veggies, <laughs> get, get your protein, eat your veggies. <laughs> yes, yes. I think um, I think that you know we, we, that all of the things that um, that that are so sound so boring, but um, you know actually help us in all the aspects of our life and for um, other chronic disease risk, not just cancer, are the are the um, same messages. So we want lots of fruit and vegetables um, for for cancer risk in particular. We want to make sure that we limit red meat consumption. Um, but, um, yeah, certainly, um, you know, um, interestingly, um, 
uh, one of the things that is um, is different between preventing an, um, an initial cancer diagnosis and um, preventing recurrence, where the evidence differs is in, rega in regards to alcohol consumption. So um, if you were speaking to your friends and family who've not had breast cancer and they said, is it okay for me to drink alcohol? Um, we would, we, our recommendation would be to say that, um, no, absolutely, alcohol consumption is associated with an initial breast cancer diagnosis. Um, however, what we, um, if you've already been diagnosed with um, uh, breast cancer and you're undergoing treatment or you're post-treatment, we haven't seen, we, we, we don't see that same relationship. So consuming alcohol after the breast cancer diagnosis um, isn't consistently associated with recurrence. Um, uh, however, because it will, uh, we, you know, we would still recommend limiting consumption because we would want to reduce the risk of a second primary breast cancer. So on that, I guess if you've got some family and friends who are obviously asking you more questions about your diagnosis, who, who themselves haven't had a diagnosis, what can people tell them about how exercise and good nutrition can help prevent or at least reduce the risk of a getting a breast cancer diagnosis? Yeah, so we're really lucky. Um, the, the World Cancer Research Fund has this incredible um, research program called the Continuous Update Program. And volunteer researchers from all over the world, hundreds and hundreds of them, pull together every single published paper that, um, has, uh, that exists in um, diet and physical activity and cancer risk. And then and 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 they pull them together, and then they the, the reason it's called continuous update is as new publications come out, they keep reflecting then and looking at the recommendations. So it's this incredible resource for us in terms of um, and and there's one whole report from the WCRF that's just on breast cancer, um, and it's the only cancer that has its own separate report. Um, and so what we know from that is that there is, um, and, and again, we talk about these levels of the evidence. So, um, so we classify then all of these potential risk factors and, and different um, components of people's lives into whether there's very strong evidence or moderate evidence or limited or no evidence. And we know from that that there's very strong evidence that uh, being physically active and breastfeeding um, reduces your risk of a diagnosis of breast cancer. And that consuming alcohol, being tall and being of greater birth weight all increase your um, risk of uh, breast cancer diagnosis. Now, that's a little bit frustrating for a lot of people. Now, I'm six foot one and I find that a very um, disappointing um, outcome. So the way that I've reframed that is to say, absolutely, there's nothing I can do about my height. There's nothing I can do about my birth weight. But what I can do then is say, if it was a game of chance, which is, you know, what risk factors really are, it's a little bit like lottery tickets. I got a few extra lottery tickets. There's no guarantee I'm going to win, but my chances are increased. So perhaps for me, it might be that that's my additional motivation to be more physically active during my life or to, you know, be more aware of my dietary or my alcohol choices. What's really fascinating, because you'll remember earlier that I told you that um, weight gain during cancer treatment leads to poorer recurrence and mortality outcomes. The, st the story is a little bit different when we're talking about the first diagnosis. So being overweight or obese during young adulthood, which is 18 to 30 years, um, actually decreases the risk of premenopausal breast cancer. 
Um, but being um, overweight, so we, this is a bit counterintuitive. We wouldn't have expected that um, that that outcome um, that of decreased risk. Um, but being overweight or obese during adulthood and weight and greater weight gain during that adulthood, so from when you're 30 onwards, actually increases the risk of postmenopausal breast cancer. So we end up with a bit of a complicated story there. You know, lots of our messaging around cancer prevention is around healthy weight gain, um, healthy weight management. It's around those key behaviours that lead to healthy and contribute to healthy weight management. But in fact, actually, when we look really deeply at that research evidence, being overweight or obese in that early child, um, early adult phase actually is, is, gives us some prevention um, for um, premenopausal breast cancer. So I don't know how people want to take that. I, I don't say then therefore go and put on weight um, as a prevention measure. Um, but what I do say is, you know, be kind to yourself and, and maybe that's one less ticket in the lottery that you've got if, um, if that happens to be your circumstance. That was Professor Erica James, Behavioural Epidemiologist at the University of Newcastle and the Hunter Medical Research Institute. If you'd like to learn more about breast cancer trials or you'd like to support our life-saving research, follow us on social media or visit our website at breastcancertrials.org.au.